First Peter chapter 3 verses 17 through 22. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This passage opens in verse 17 with Peter reiterating the main point of his epistle, his letter. It is better to suffer for doing good than for evil. And he's essentially saying, be prepared to suffer when you're doing good. You think you're doing good and everybody will say, oh, well, how wonderful. But instead, you will suffer for doing good. And in the midst of that, we must depend on the grace of God to persevere through the suffering that is actually by the will of God so that we glorify God. And our encouragement and our example to persevere through that suffering is Jesus himself who, as verse 18 reminds us, suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Since Jesus suffered in every way, he knows what we need and is more than able to provide the strength, the power that we need. That same power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the Bible says, that same power is at work in us now. So Jesus gives us the power that we need to endure any suffering, to deal with every trouble. When even when he had to go through the agony of the cross, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit ministering to him, to come to him, and to cause him to, and strengthen him to endure. That's the same power, that's the same Holy Spirit that is at work in us. So when we face those difficult situations, we don't have to look any further than this example of Jesus. That's what Peter is pointing us to. Jesus understands where we are at and what we're going through and he acts to strengthen us, to save us. In our um, current 21 days of fasting and prayer, we are praying through Psalm 103. Last night we were in Psalm 103 verse 13, which states that as a father has compassion on his children, the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
And compassion, as the Bible describes it, compassion as it states it as a characteristic or attribute of God, compassion is not merely being understanding or sympathetic. Most of the time we think of that in terms of what the world would say, oh, I feel great compassion. And it can be limited to just feeling some sympathy. But when we think of the compassion of God, it is to show compassion in such a way that it, that it bears, that it shares in the suffering and it takes action. This compassion of God is to take action to assist in every way. And so in Psalm 103, it makes it very clear that the compassion of the Lord includes his forgiving us, his removing our sins from us, his healing us, his delivering us, his receiving us to himself and renewing us, his teaching us and his loving us. There's a very active role for the Lord when he shows compassion to us. And so praise the Lord that not only did Jesus suffer for our sakes, but he is also compassionately engaged in every suffering that we go through. He doesn't say you will not suffer, but he is with us in the midst of that suffering. Any terrible, anything else. Now, as for the next few verses of this passage we've just read, verses 19 through 22, Bible scholars and commentators have presented differing views on what Peter means when he says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who were disobedient during the days of Noah. Now you read that phrase and you think, what is he referring to? What does it mean that Jesus proclaimed or preached to imprisoned spirits? Who were these spirits? And how is baptism related to Noah's flood? So if you've got those questions, since I'll be going through those the best understood responses to those questions, I'll be going through that very quickly. I'll be glad to address any follow-up questions during our sermon discussion this coming Wednesday. And we will have opportunity as we keep going through next week and then as we get into Second Peter, we'll have opportunity to keep sort of touching on these topics. But we're going through very quickly to try to get to the, the best response to these questions that come up. And so the first question, where did Jesus go between his death and resurrection? And why did he go there? That's what it, it says, that he was revived or came, was made alive in the spirit. And then he went. Where did he go? Well, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter addresses the crowd after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he quotes Psalm 16, Psalm of David, Psalm 16. And he uses Psalm 16 that is written by David a thousand years before Jesus' time to explain Jesus' death and resurrection. So Peter is speaking, he, he quotes the psalm, and he uses that psalm to refer to what Jesus has just gone through. And here's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 33. He says, he, or he said, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, 
and your ESV version says Hades or hell, nor did his body see decay or corruption. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So keep that in mind. And then listen to this. In Matthew chapter 12 verse 40, Jesus spoke of his own death and burial in this way. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the common association in the minds of Jesus' hearers was that heaven was above and hell was below in the depths of the earth. So when Jesus is making this reference, he's making a reference to what the people there would have understood when he says they will be in the heart of the earth. So in addition to the Psalms and other Old Testament scriptures, the people in that time of Jesus and of the apostles and so on, the people, particularly all these Jewish, believer, Jewish people and those that had now become believers of the Lord Jesus, the people would have been familiar with extra-biblical traditions and stories about Hades or hell where those who had not put their faith in God, the, the spirits of those who had died in their sins would go to Hades and they would be imprisoned as such. So the people would have been familiar with that idea. So when it speaks about these spirits being in prison, that's the, that's the, the, the message or the truth that these people would, the hearers would have understood. So Peter is drawing on all these understandings to state that Jesus descended into hell to make his proclamation. What was he proclaiming? We'll see in the next chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, that even though Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, it uses that phrase, that he proclaimed the gospel, Jesus didn't go or descend or interact with these spirits in prison to preach the gospel so that they may be saved. Don't misunderstand this. You have to be careful about reading these statements and interpreting the words according to a different context. Jesus goes to these these spirits, he couldn't have been making an appeal for salvation since these spirits were already separated from God. And the Bible is clear that there isn't a purgatorial second chance for departed spirits. Right? That, that's not the case. Those are all things that people have come up with. But the Bible never states that something like that. So Jesus is not going and speaking to these spirits and saying, believe in me and you can be saved. That's not the message, that's not the gospel message as such that he is describing or speaking. Rather, he is describing what he has accomplished on the cross. He is describing how the 
first plan of salvation, first part of the plan of salvation. Him coming into the earth, him dying for our sins, him being resurrected from the dead. Jesus is describing how the first part of salvation has been now fulfilled. He is proclaiming the gospel message to assert, to establish, to proclaim his dominion and his authority over all spirits, all men, all fallen angels, and over all his works. And we will come back to this idea of the, the spirits being fallen angels or including fallen angels. We'll come back to the, that when we get to Second Peter chapter 2. Because there, Peter makes a very similar reference. And he refers back to this portion and he refers to Noah again and so on. But in that, situa- that verse, he talks about fallen angels, right? That, it's not exactly that phrase, but we'll come to that. So here, what we're looking at and what we're understanding is that Jesus declares his authority over these spirits. He is, and, and, and look, the reason that scholars and commentators and theologians have struggled with this is because we don't, we can't quite comprehend what this looks like. What did this look like? How did he do this? What, what, were, what was the condition of these spirits? How did all of this happen? We don't have that in such great detail that we can say this is exactly what happened. There were traditions, there were stories, there were all sorts of other writings and things which we do not have today as canonical scripture. We don't receive them as the word of God. But there were stories that were circulating amongst the people to say, oh, this is what hell is like and this is what Jesus did and this is how the fallen angels were. All these kinds of things were there. But the gist of all of this is to say that Jesus declares his authority. Jesus declares his dominion. Because, and we're coming to this in just a second here, because there was a need to establish that. There was a need for what Jesus did to be the declare, declaration of God's salvation. And here's what I mean by that. Because when we go into this section and as we read through this, what you understand is that angels, authorities, and powers are all subject to Jesus. Remember, that Peter's purpose in writing these epistles, these letters, to the persecuted Christians in Asia Minor is to strengthen them. He's not writing to say, oh, you know, have a good day. You know, I'm thinking of you. He says, look, I know what you're going through. I know that you're suffering. And you need to still be submissive to human authorities even when they harm you. You have to still be submissive to one another. You have to still be submissive in the way that the Lord would take and use you and do all of these things. But let me tell you why. Because Jesus suffered for your sake. He knows what you're going through. He is with you. And, they, and he's encouraging them. He's building them up. He's saying to them, stay strong in the Lord. Persevere till the end. That's our main theme as we're going through First and Second Peter. right? That we would persevere till the end. But as one commentator puts it, Peter shares with Paul and early Christians generally the belief that authority and power in this world are earthly expressions of unseen fallen spiritual entities. 
Submission to secular authority as well as submission to all the constraints of earthly existence is a form of bondage to the powers of evil. What's he saying? Or what is that commentary really trying to express? That there are evil forces at work in the world. In fact, there are territorial spirits and principalities and powers and all of this that exist in the world. In fact, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil says to him, bow down to me and worship me and I will give you all these kingdoms of the world. So there is all of those things that are there. But, and, 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 and so these believers are aware of this. They're aware, you know, early Christians and maybe even much further back, even into the Old Testament, there was a, a, a clear awareness of spiritual forces. Today we don't typically talk about that. We don't talk about demons and, you know, spirits and things like that. But they exist. And there's nothing to be alarmed about it. It's just to know that there are spiritual entities. And so when Peter is encouraging the believers, he's saying, although there are spiritual forces of wickedness that prevail in the earth, those evil forces have no authority or dominion over a child of God. Darkness cannot prevail over those who are in the light. Why? Because... As we have read here in verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. With the fall of man, with that sin taking place in the Garden of Eden, with the, with the fact that man who had dominion over earth submitted to the devil and therefore yielded the dominion of the earth to the devil, there was a need for that power of sin to be broken. And all through those centuries, God was putting in place and was preparing the way for Jesus to come and to break the power of sin and death. Now, until Jesus comes and until he did that on the cross, people were saved as they are saved today. How? By faith in God. It wasn't by works. It wasn't because they did sacrifice. It wasn't because they lived in a certain place. It wasn't any of those things except the fact that because they put faith in Yahweh, because they believed in the covenant promises of the Lord, because they were brought into that promise of God, they were saved. They were not going to be in prison when they died, but rather they would be with the Lord himself. That's what we have the, the explanation of and the instances of it and the way in which we can understand how that happened. But when Jesus came, because of the perfect sacrifice, because of that gospel message, because of the fact that he shed his blood and paid the price, that power of sin and death was broken completely. And so at that point in time, the dominion, the authority, the territorial or power, spiritual entity, forces that would have been in power and reigning as such, their power is now subject, subject to Jesus. That's what Jesus is stating. Now, we can look at the world around us and we can say, oh, I don't know, I don't see that. It seems like the devil is still in control. 
One of the things that the Bible says is that the devil's main job is to deceive. One of the ways that he's described is that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. These descriptions and then other descriptions that he comes like an angel of light and so on. These descriptions are not saying, well, the devil is still, you know, in control. Devil is still in dominion. Devil still has authority. You just have to tread carefully and not go where the devil is. You know, it, What the Bible is telling us is that even though dominion, authority, and power is in the hands of the Lord, the devil continues to deceive and to intimidate and to incite fear, invoke fear to say, no, 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 I'm still in control. And what do most people in the world think? The devil is in control. Now, they don't say that. You know, you may not get explicit Satanists, you know, or Satan worship, but what you're getting is people who will go the way of their deception will go the way of wherever they are being pulled into by the forces of evil without even realizing it. Eyes are blinded, ears are stopped. And so people will go in this direction. But the reality, the truth is, Jesus has done something and he proclaims it. He proclaims it so that we can proclaim it. He proclaims it so that we will be assured in it. And he has taken authority over all of these authorities and powers and angels and everything else. Which means that we respond and apply the word of God that we are hearing by appealing to God for a clear conscience. Now again, as we went through this passage, and like I said, I'm going through the passage or I'm making these points and I'm going through this very quickly. But there's the reference that Peter makes to the conscience. Last week, based on verse 16, we were charged to keep a clear conscience. To have that inward witness of the Holy Spirit that we are walking blamelessly before God. No willful sin, no you know, purposeful acts of defiance or rebellion against God, but walking blamelessly before God. Our conscience is clear. This week, we are charged again in this passage to have a clear conscience, but Peter adds this detail. He says we are able to have, or we can pledge this clear conscience by our act of obeying the Lord in water baptism. He says, in being baptized, we make this pledge of our clear conscience, of our conscience being before the Lord. So just as in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, Paul compares water baptism to the passing of the children of Israel through the midst of the Red Sea. We had that in our reading and in our, in our songs and everything. This morning we were, we were just being reminded of that. But Paul compares the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea with the water around them. He compares that to water baptism. He says it's as if they have been baptized. Right? They're coming through the water. Here Peter is comparing the water baptism as 
the passing of Noah and his family through these flood waters. Now they're not submerged, they're not covered over, but they're going through the waters. And he uses that image, that instance, that picture to talk about baptism. Now, again, there are details and nuances to this that I'm not going through to this morning. But the idea, and he says, water baptism doesn't, it's not about cleansing the body. It's not about getting rid of filth on the body. But water baptism is to show that we have gone through death and into life. It is to show that we, now as we would declare this, as we are baptized in the name of Jesus, we would declare that we have been put to death in the flesh and that we have been risen again, we are rising again into new life in Christ Jesus. But he's making that, he's taking that image, that truth and saying, the children of Israel went through the water. The Noah and the, eight, the, the seven others, the eight that were in the ark, they went through the water. And they were saved. They were rescued. They were brought to life when it could have been death or should have been death. And clearly, those situations were deadly situations. So it was only the grace of God, only the work of God that brought them into life. And so he's using those truths to, to talk about that when we are baptized in water, we are proclaiming the power of the Lord to both save us and to preserve us. That's our declaration. When we go into the water and then we come back out, we're saying, I believe and I declare, I proclaim that the, that the Lord Jesus is able to save me and that the Lord Jesus is able to preserve me so that I will be able to run the race, so that in the midst of suffering I will be able to persevere and, I, and he will join me to himself at the right time. And when at the fulfillment of all that he has said. When we are baptized in water, we are pledging to live on earth with a clear conscience. That's how he's tying these things together. When we live on earth with the call to be in a clear, have a clear conscience, he says, when you get baptized in water, you're making that pledge. You're saying, I promise, I pledge, I resolve that from this day, I will no longer live for myself, but I will live for my Lord Jesus. And I pledge to do and proclaim what the gospel message is. That's the, that's the institution, that's the ordinance, that's the, 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 the beauty, the truth of baptism. Those are the two things, one of the two things that the Lord commanded us to do, to observe the Lord's Supper and to be baptized. Now, keep in mind that Peter's hearers, Paul's hearers, the early Christians, they would have been baptized in water quite quickly after they said, oh, I believe in the Lord Jesus. This would not have been, you know, years later. They would have made that pledge. They would have said, I believe. And then they would have made that public declaration. They would have made that pledge to say, I'm baptized. Right? So that's where all of these connections are coming in. And again, I'm just 
briefly connecting these things to say this is what Peter is referring to. This is what he is explaining. But I want to close with this important statement because the ultimate purpose of Jesus and the ultimate purpose of Jesus that Peter is describing is what Jesus is, is right in the beginning of these, this passage when it says that Jesus has done this. Jesus has suffered for uh, once for all, once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That was Jesus' purpose. It's not so that we can understand all the nuances of what he did when he descended into hell. That, that's not the point. The point is that Jesus brings us to God. Jesus opens the way for us to be joined with our Father. Jesus paid the price so that we don't have to come with anything in our hands. We don't have to figure out how to pay. You know, we don't have to look for the means by which we will enter in. Jesus did it. He paid it all. And so the reason that this passage is critically, vitally important for us and was vitally important for those persecuted Christians is because we are rejoicing in this one truth that the Lord Jesus has brought us to him, to the Lord, to the, to the Father. He has brought us to God. He has done everything possible and necessary to bring us to God. So we have confidence. So we know, no matter what happens to this physical body, I'm with the Lord. So that we know that no matter what the, the trouble that may come at us, whether it comes from a spiritual entity or not, the Lord is sovereign in my life. I am with him. So that we know that no matter what lies ahead of us and the path that may, you know, that whatever challenges there are and whatever good things there are and whatever blessings there are and everything else, this world is not the thing that we are looking for. We are looking to be united with Christ for eternity because Jesus has brought us to God. That's the promise. That's the reality. That's the confidence that we have. So I pray that this morning, you know, even as, I, even as we're closing, I, I want to I challenge you, I want to encourage you that throughout this year, throughout the rest of your days, throughout anything that would come at you, that you would keep saying, Lord God, help me to know whose I am. I, I thank you that I know who you are. I thank you that you did what you did. But help me to remember whose I am and what you have done in recreating me, in changing me in allowing me to be brought to you as your precious child. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, the promises of the word are yes and amen. Oh, we thank you, Lord, that you bring us to yourself. You bring us to the Father. You pay the price. You make the way. You do all that is necessary for us to have life abundantly. And we praise you for it. Oh, Lord God, I pray that as we continue to meditate on your word, as we, Lord, stand on your promises, as we look to what Jesus did. Father, you didn't have to do any of these things. You could have said, oh, well, they deserve the punishment that they get. But you didn't. Lord, as we've been reminded every night, Lord, you showed compassion. You forgave our sins, even though we didn't deserve it. You removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, you were kind and loving and merciful to us, and we praise you for it. 
So Lord, this week, this month, this year, the rest of our days, help us to walk in this relationship that you have called us to. Not being overwhelmed by the circumstances of the world and not being in any way intimidated by the evil principalities, powers and authorities because they are entirely subject to you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you. Let your peace prevail. Let your glory be manifest. Let your power, Lord, strengthen us, that same power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, strengthen us to keep persevering in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.